Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio podcast, all about the tabletop RPG hobby, mostly centered for the game masters, but the players, fuck yeah, get in here. Let's do this shit. I'm your host, Matt. I am David. And this week we didn't have D&D, but uh, last Monday... I started up with a, an old group of mine that I used to play Call of Cthulhu with, as well as a couple other games. And we're going to start back up. It's just me and three other guys. And at first, uh, I just had it all set up online for um, Altered State, the ICRPG cyberpunk game. Because I was like, these guys aren't going to really choose anything. I'm just going to choosing for them. Nope, uh, that was not the the case. They decided that they wanted to do a Weird West style, so I said, okay. They were looking through the the ICRPG book, and they saw Ghost Mountain, which is the Weird West setting. They're like, oh, let's do this. All right. So now I'm kind of racking my brain trying to come up with a a good Weird West style uh, adventure. And it's really nice because in the ICRPG book, when it talks about Ghost Mountain, it has a real rich backstory and all this other stuff that has to do with it and uh it's really just a western that runs dungeons but they call the dungeon something different but pretty much it's just a dungeon delver so it's actually quite easy to make uh other than that shadow run is still going on we actually played in uh or we uh we lost power at work so we did it real old school we did it in the dark with candles nice um, but that is uh, coming to a that is going to be coming to an end pretty soon. I think we've got about maybe five more sessions before it comes to the culmination that I've had in my head for this. And uh, I don't know if I want to continue on or not. That's a big decision. They, they do like uh, at least two of them has made it apparent that they want to continue on. But I don't know. I feel like this is going to be like a good ending to this story and for these characters. It, well, it probably depends whether you decide you want to take up the mantle of running our game. When I finish this adventure, mm-hmm. we're going to have probably two two or maybe three short standalone adventures between this major plot. The, let's just call it the Red Woman plot line um until we return to that as per the other players requests that's that's what they want to do they want to kind of have some episodic stuff between there if you wanted to run one or the other of those adventures that will probably govern that will probably take up your your weekly wherewithal for you know running a game Mm -hmm. but if you don't then maybe Maybe you will want to continue on with, with Shadowrun. I'm I'm game for either. I'm fine oh, to run I'm gonna, the standard <clears throat> adventure. Like I'm going to keep going with that group. I just don't know if I I want to start something new. I don't know if I want to start if I just want to continue on with those characters again. Mm. Well, I'm of the opinion in general if your care if your players want to continue on with the story and the characters that that's probably what you should do, even if it feels like it's getting a little stale. For you, hopefully your player's enthusiasm can carry the day mm-hmm. and maybe inspire. You know, you could always just do a don't continue the same story. Like, it's not another continuation, but pick it up a couple of years in game time yeah. after where they, you know, got to get back together and 
then that way the story would be fresh, but the characters would be um, the same characters and you would give them an opportunity to kind of maybe push the characters arcs off screen, mm-hmm. so to speak a little bit further. They could be slightly different. Maybe oh, I want to develop them in this way as he kind of gets, you know, he's been out of the shadow running game for, you know, a couple of years or whatever. And now this is bringing us back in. What is that? What are the things that could call you back to action for all you to get back together? What does it mean for you to get back together? Old dynamics. How have you grown? Like, that could be interesting stuff. Uh, maybe that would be enough to keep it fresh for you. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I'm going to keep up with them and ask them if they want to continue on with these characters, and I'm all for it. Uh, but if not, then we can move on to something else. <clears throat> I don't know if they want to keep doing cyberpunk or if they want to go to fantasy. That's the that's the only thing I really want to know is if we don't continue, what do we want to do? Right. All right. Well, not much else news going on. Um, actually, yeah, I wish I had my news thing that I created. I wanted to talk about Baldur's Gate 3. I wanted to see how you felt about uh, having, you know, fucking a bear. There's a whole thing right now. I don't even know if it's true, but it's, from what I've seen, yes, there's like a part in the game. You know, Baldur's Gate has been one of the greatest PC games that is in the D&D universe that has ever been out there. And they're coming out with Baldur's Gate 3. And at some point, your character can have a relationship with a druid. And there's like an old, like an actual thing where you can like have sex with them while they're wild shaped into a bear. And uh, I don't know. That's yeah. I want to know how you felt about that. Not good. (laughs) We'll just start until I know more about it. I'll just say that doesn't seem like a thing that is going to sit well. I'd have to know more about the context of why, but just sex with animals in general is not something I typically endorse. But since it's, like an elf transformed into a bear is a bestiality. That just gets into the operational definition of what constitutes a beast. If they don't have animal intelligence, then no, but it really raises the question of why you would be sexually attracted to a bear. (laughs) That's weird, right? I mean, even if it has the mind of somebody that you admire and respect and, and all that, like just, that's weird that you would want that when you have the option to not have that Mm -hmm. when you have the option to have elf (laughs) which by most accounts and most fantasy settings are pretty aesthetic Mm -hmm. by human standards or giant disgusting fucking animal like (laughs) why would you want it moreover why is there sex in a DD game anyway (laughs) this is not something that should be the emphasis of uh any D related thing mm-hmm. like romance maybe but we don't need to be getting into the grittiness of the sex this isn't anyway so it's 2023 oh. baby we fuck everything apparently that has to your sexuality just has to define you now mm-hmm. apparently even if it's in some fantasy world where you know it's really not about interpersonal relationships and romance no. so much as it's about it's all about grander ha- yeah. stakes having some drinks getting weird and being like hey i know you could turn into a bear let's yeah, just up? give this a shot and see what it's like yeah. <laughs> whatever <laughs> man i mean if it's if it's selling i guess why not you know true all right doesn't interest me let's do a community question and get away from the bear fucking one one get an ace 
All right. This one comes from Caterail. Caterail. Okay. Looking for a luck-based stakes game to add into my game. I'm starting a homebrew Pathfinder 2nd Edition campaign where a prominent character is a goddess of luck. Games an adventurer who runs a casino and loves to play high-stakes games with mortals, though she never alters the luck and results of the games, preferring raw randomness. I want to add into this character and its themes by having my players have a game or several during the campaign against her with personal stakes. However, I'm not sure how to pull this out. I was thinking about a simple dice-based game I play on Foundry, by the way. I don't want to take too much time or explanation during my sessions, but I still have some... Uh, but I still have some suspense about the outcome. Okay. I don't know how many dice games that would, uh, that would fit into this. Do you have some and know any that would work? Have you ever had an in in universe luck game work out? Hmm. Yeah, that's a interesting concept. Interesting notion. Mm -hmm. But, uh, there seems to be kind of a critical flaw in the concept, which is if you're going up against the goddess of luck, how can, if that's her domain, how can luck not be in her favor, given that it is the domain under which, you know, she influences. Yeah. So this is a goddess of luck. When people want luck to go in their favor, presumably they pray to this goddess because she can control it in some way. Oh yeah. It so, says right here, though she never alters the luck and results of the games because she prefers raw randomness. But how do the players know that? Oh, shit. this is like in the concept of the game, the players don't know that the characters don't know that. Right. This is somebody who there is a big power asymmetry. This person is a goddess, thing is a goddess, and these are mere mortals. So that provides the most of the drama right there. If you want to have the problem with a pure purely randomized situation is that it can go one of two ways and you effectively have to write two plots. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of complicated. Because if you're just going to let the dice fall where they may, yeah, that's going to be win or failure. But where is the drama if the characters feel like it's just totally random? I would try to incorporate in some way some skills that the characters might have that could be applied to the dice results, mm. like having proficiency in a in a gaming set or something. That would skew the results a little because but if you're if you're just content on it having a be a total game of chance you need to appropriately set the stakes and give the players the option to opt in it, it shouldn't be a mandatory part of the plot where the players go we must engage in a random thing that could that could go against us because in order for it to have any gravity, the outcome would have to, there'd have to be some pretty high stakes. And part of the implicit agreement between the GM and the players is that the GM presents stakes and challenges and the players accept them, even if it's only ceremonially. 
if they feel like they're being ushered down a path where the plot goes this way, and in order for there to be drama for these games, there needs to be high stakes. And you really have no choice but to enter into this high stakes game that's random. You can't influence the outcome by the fact that you're clever, by the fact that you're charismatic, by the fact that you're uh, wise. It's just a pure random dice rolls. And if it goes badly for you, then there's going to be huge consequences. And they're like, what if you know your more risk averse players are probably not going to want to do that? Um, I acknowledge that all that really doesn't answer the question. (laughs) I am not familiar with any games personally, but as a general rule, I try to keep things. If what he's saying is um, similar to my own sensibilities, which it sounds like it is, you don't want to take up too much of the in-game time. It wants to be a short and pithy, Mm -hmm. uh, random uh, dice game or game of random chance then what you need to do is just keep it fairly simple because the more complicated and the more convoluted the rules are the more it is uh going to take time in game and the more the players aren't likely to understand how it works i would say just try to think of games that are like that and maybe transport them to your normal uh into your fantasy game you know dice is an actual game you just play dice this is a game that people play it's fairly random and part of the reason it doesn't have much appeal to me is because of that there's really not a lot of skill involved in do it's not like a for instance yahtzee yahtzee Mm -hmm. is a dice game and so is random but it is there is some skill involved to it and to like where you assign things and how you play things and whatever uh but if it's just if you just want it to be pure chance then try to keep the whatever game you use as simple as possible have it have like three or four rules and make sure that it's random either with a deck of cards or dice or probably your best way to go uh i don't know maybe you know some other games that are really conducive to this style of play but it doesn't sound like it sounds like he's walking kind of a tightrope yeah. here of what it is he wants. Yeah, uh, if you want to keep it that simple, I know that I was trying to find it. Uh, I know that in the Pathfinder universe, there is a dice game that they have rules for called Bounder. I think it's called Bounder. Um, but I know that I've seen them. There's actual rules for them, and they they are really quick. Uh, and it's made to be even up to like 20 players playing it at one time. Um. Other than that, uh, I don't. I don't think I like the idea of just pure randomness, just rolling some dice in the higher wins. That's kind of boring. Like Dave was yeah. saying, you know, let them use their proficiency if they want to cheat, even against the the goddess of luck. If that's the cool thing, that's the cool aspect of it. You know, you bring that in. Oh my god, you know, you're gonna cheat the goddess of luck, even if you didn't know it. It's still a cool fucking thing to do. Uh, so, th- yeah. I would say um, you can't really take luck-based stakes into a game to and make it really that awarding um, just because I would like rewarding. to have something rewarding. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I want there to be something else in there that I get out of it or that I can manipulate. A, a willingness to engage is, is if you're making this necessary, you're effectively pushing the player up to the roulette table mm. and saying, choose. 
And like, well, I never agreed to choose. I was like, no, the whole plot hinges on it. Just choose. It's like, well, what the fuck, man? Like, I'm the, is this, do I have some sort of autonomy in this situation? Because strangely, <laughs> luck and the notion of luck is that there are random circumstances in the world, in life. The generally, the reason that this is appealing to us is that uh, kind of to my point last week about the picaresque novel, it is heroic for the players to acknowledge and engage in the fact that there is some random chance in the world. And through their skills, their moxie, their, their cleverness, they still can win the day because their own determination is what makes their way in the world. But if you're using luck towards some sort of fatalistic end, it paints a very different world in which the players exist and is more analogous to the real world, which can be kind of a bummer. Like you think about like, well, I happen to just have the dumb luck of being born in America. So my life is great. And the destitute, horrible people that just have the dumb luck of being born in India, they have a shit life. That's no virtue of mine where and no detriment to them. They're not bad people and I'm not a good person just because I have a good life and I'm rewarded through random chance. When you're rewarded through random chance, it takes the heroism and adventure out of a story yeah. because it doesn't really, it's not your doing. And that's the whole purpose of agency in a role-playing game and frankly is probably part of why we're drawn to it because we realize the real world isn't like that a lot of the time and we want something that makes it feel like the characters can affect their surroundings they are they influence their surroundings their in their surroundings don't influence them and even when things don't go their way they can still win the day so you, you're really walking a tightrope here and um the concept is a neat concept but i don't think you're thinking about the broader implications for your world mm -hmm. and the 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 way in which it's going to play out in the psyche of your characters who are likely to feel helpless and likely to feel like they have no choice but to engage in random acts like the stakes that are going to be high you could have them be really low stakes but then it's like where's the drama in that it just doesn't you know people in the taverns in your world don't don't gamble dice games for like a measly copper piece likely that's not you know mm -hmm. someone gives a shit so if you're playing with a goddess the stakes have to be pretty high if it's germane to the plot and your players have to know that they can not engage in that but if it's all random they don't have confidence that they can affect the outcome then it's just gonna it's gonna send them time to tail spinning and, and you have to have a purpose for that if you don't have a purpose for that you just think it's a cool concept you need to re you need to think the think through the purpose of what it's doing and what it does to your world and the whole structure of the plot. Then, if you decide you do want to do that, try to keep it simple so that it's fast paced and pithy, complicated enough where the the players need to do a few steps here and there. But there's really no strategy or anything, so it really could just be three d six. Who gets the highest? You know, yeah. it's like, it, and there's no hinging of drama on that, but uh, you could just do it like a cumulative round by round, almost run it like a skill challenge in some way where maybe the PCs 
need to roll some dice and cumulatively you have to get as much as the goddess or something like that and then you could run it round by round and and it would be every fall of the die would be somewhat dramatic and and that's probably your best chance for success but i would retool the concept yeah possibly. very much if you're going to do anything uh or if you're going to take our advice the skill challenge i think is the best way to do it but if you do just want to make it simple and you just want some regular games, since you're using Foundry, I can throw some stuff out there. Dice, no problem. You can just use the little, you can use any of the, the commands or if you get the dice um, bar mod, you can use that. If you want to do roulette, make a rolling table, one for the color, one for the number. Nice and easy. Mm -hmm. Just make a macro, hit that, and it'll give you, you know, red 16 or whatever. Um, left, right, center, you could do that um and then cards there is a card function in foundry if you want to actually do cards he doesn't say what system he's using but if you're try tying a sense of randomness maybe to some concept to the plot and if you're going to do that the deck of many things in dungeons and dragons is a great example of pure chaos Yeah, there you go yeah he's... it's just an ex a, gr a great example of just pure chaos mm -hmm. that is random super good or really detrimental and it could just it could just run one draw of the deck of many things could just take your campaign in a completely different direction. If you want absolute engine of chaos mm -hmm. artifact, then it has some importance and it could be a MacGuffin. It could be a plot device that maybe the goddess places there towards some end. And then she's kind of a puppet master or kind of pulling the strings or observing. And then you could maybe introduce her into the plot and it would have a little more gravitas. Um, but just, you know, that, if if you're in D and D, then that's probably the best uh, vehicle for that. It's a story device that would that would help put that randomness and chaos in the player's mind. Yeah, that'd be really great because uh, I know in the DMG they talk about uh, with the deck of many things, or maybe it's just in a couple of the adventures that I've read, but it's usually found with the herald of fate. Like you walk into a room and there's this cloak uh, cladded skeleton that just has the deck in front of them. And he said, you know, he's just like, oh, you want to tempt fate? Yeah. Uh, make it that you just come in and it's a woman, you know, that's just, that is the goddess in disguise. Just like, would you like to tempt fate or would you like to test your luck? Um, yeah. Moreover, and that, God, that would be cool just because, yeah, that, that just complete chaos of it is so cool. Yeah. All right. I think that is, uh, that's going to be my answer to deck of many things. There you go. Boom. Okay. If D and D. <laughs> All right, uh, Dave has come with us to uh, this week with a new segment that he's come up with. Dave, you want to run us down the, the new segment? Sure. Um, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the things that we agree upon. And that's great. We have very similar sensibilities. Uh, we, come, we come to agreement about a lot of things. Uh but we're also kind of different in some sensibilities. Our games run differently. So that got me thinking about where are some things that we differ on? Or at the very least, as an interesting thought exercise, maybe we don't necessarily differ, but get you thinking about things that maybe we're not in one camp or another. We're not going to debate minis over theater of the mind. There's no debate there to be had. But I like to think that even if I don't subscribe to one camp and perhaps if you don't subscribe to one camp that we can think through the merits of that. And so I, uh, I used to 
coach a high school debate team here in California. And I really like rhetoric and I really like debate. And I think it's a very good way to see counter viewpoints and the, and the validity of them. So I decided to maybe we could pick a few of these things each week that would segue into our main topic and uh, call it state your case. So this week uh, I chose a thing that is maybe Matt or I have strong sensibilities about one way or another, but really just have different uh, purposes in your campaign. We had spoken previously toward the beginning of the podcast, maybe our fifth or sixth or seventh episode about what makes a good villain. And there are some pillar things that make a good villain, but they probably fall into independent of those pillar things that all good villains need to have. There are some things that make a villain likable that you like them, you root for them, or you don't necessarily root for them, but you uh, are intrigued by them. As per our previous discussion, villains are not hamstrung in the same way that heroes are. So they can, in a lot of ways, be more interesting. Likeable villains in film, in particular, are really have a lot of uh, gravitas. They have, they contextualize things in the plot. So uh, Hans and Die Hard is a really likable villain. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, uh, I would even argue that the T 800 is likable you know arnold as the as the terminator although he has very little personality we tend to like villains that operate on instinct you know that the xenomorph from aliens like it's awesome people like that villain even though he has no person it has no personality but it operates on instinct right so we're like well you know it's not a moral agent it's just operating on instinct that's kind of a good way to make it likable but then on the other hand you have villains that are hateable and you you really like to hate them. Mm -hmm. uh, so some some that come to mind are like Joffrey yeah. in Game of Thrones. It's just like just the absolutely fucking despicable uh, villain. Two sides of the same coin. They probably share a lot of things in common that make them a good villain, but they serve different purposes. And so today, Matt, state your case. Likeable villains or hateable villains, which camp are you in? I'm going for the likable villains. And go ahead okay. and give me your first point or your initial thesis, your your opening statement, if you will. My first point, uh, when it comes to villains, uh, yes, they are the person that is up against your hero, but with likable villains, there's nothing that gets you more into the story, especially the conflict between the hero and the villain. Mm -hmm. If you almost feel like more connected and you'd rather see what happens to the villain more than the hero. And there's nothing more crushing than when you get to love this villain so much. And you know that he has, you know, he has to be defeated in some way. He either has to be locked up for the rest of his life or he just has to be killed. Uh, I think that there is just more, uh, more, Oh God. Uh, Blanking more, more blankets, more blank, blank. There has to, there is more that you, uh, oh, <clears throat> no, I'm just going to reword it. You will be more invested <laughs> if the, uh, the villain is a uh, more likable, uh, especially if it's a long term. Okay. Emotional, stakes emotional. There you go. That's, that's the so word I was thinking about the emotional stakes. Okay. 
that's uh, kind of where I thought you would go with that. There's more uh, inner turmoil for the characters needing to defeat the villain because he or she is likable. Mm-hmm. You like them, and so you realize the inevitability of defeating them is going to create some inner turmoil, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll approach my first counterpoint in a similar vein from an inner emotional character-driven way, which is if the villain is hateable, despicable, there is more catharsis when they are defeated. The players and the characters in the game feel more a sense of relief, and there is a crisper line between the villain running amok and the, the... removal of them from the plot meaning that there is a crisper sense that the world is better that uh the characters feel a sense of relief and uh almost everything in their wake is going to be improved by the fact that the villain is gone no one is heartbroken at all and that gives uh, a big spike in an otherwise uh, kind of dismal world. Uh, I accept fully that this doesn't necessarily translate to every genre, but in a fantasy genre in particular, and probably to a lesser degree, um, if it's heroic fantasy or it's um, say Gothic horror or it's, uh, probably not as much in maybe in some sci-fi settings but not necessarily in a cyberpunk setting that relies a little more on moral gray area uh i probably would concede to your point that maybe it is a little um more good to have them likable in in that circumstance but i think for most genres if you want the catharsis and release of um everyone feeling good at the end of the plot if the villain is defeated that it's necessary for them to be despicable. What's your counterpoint to that? Uh, so when the uh, the villain is <clears throat> a little bit more likable, I always think of the the old friend, or hell, it could have even been like an old party mate uh, that has kind of turned the tides. And now when it comes to actually defeating this foe that has become your greatest, you know, could be your greatest villain, you, mm-hmm. the... Um, the thought that you have to have now is now like spider webbed out. It's like, well, we could just kill him, but he's, they were a great friend and I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Or we need to peacefully get him to come in peacefully or, you know, just a way of restraining the way to defeat them. There's just a lot more uh, opportunities. There's a lot more things that you could do. It gives a little bit more dynamic vision to where the adventure could be going. And I like that. So if there's more choice. Character development yes. is what you're tapping into. Yeah, I can I can concede that my standpoint is a little more simplistic, a good versus evil kind of uh, view. And certainly in the kind of Magneto in the X-Men sense, there is, a, you know, he's he's embroiled in them and they can't really just kill him outright because of the ties he has to the X-Men. And and that is a, a fairly good point, one that I would anticipate you 
to bring up. However, I'll repost okay. with this. When you make a villain in a game, we're not talking about a movie. You know, a movie is probably more thought-provoking than a game. To your point, I agree that it might give some avenues and some complexity to character development. But in the service of the plot, it probably isn't as effective because you always run the risk of the villain being likable to the point that the characters actually might identify with that villain. Mm. If, if you make them likable enough, maybe they don't want to see them go away. And maybe that might open other avenues for their character to explore aspects or to come up with creative problem solving. But it could potentially derail the plot and also blur the line between what is good in this world and what is not good. Now, don't get me wrong, I really like um, narratives with lots of moral complexity and you know, you, you chose first. So uh, that's, uh, I'm not saying that I like hateable mil- villains as a general rule more than I like likable villains. I'm saying for the purposes of a role-playing game mm-hmm. and a plot that is predicated on having a story arc and a clear catharsis that a hateable villain is more, has more utility. It's very true. Uh, I will definitely say that a hateable villain uh, where you're going, the when you finally defeat that villain, there's nothing that feels better. Yeah. As soon as they go down, it's just fuck yes, we finally did it. Fuck this asshole. Let's all go get drunk. <laughs> but I would. Oh yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was I was just gonna say that maybe uh, since it seems like we've kind of pushed past the the debate portion, maybe that segues into how do we craft if, if we're interested in crafting a likable villain? Mm-hmm. Why don't you? lay that out and i'll i'll lay out how i think you can craft a a despicable villain in a way that that serves those goals so what would you say kind of the big pillar things for making a villain uh likable um so i wanted yeah that was going to be one of my next points was uh that we talked about plot devices not too long ago and a villain a good likable villain that um that the the party has to go up against can be used as a plot device. Look at a Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes. He keeps showing up, but one of his big things is he enjoys, or the Joker from Batman, they enjoy their adversary being around and they Uh almost make it a part of their, this is my reason for living is to torment you, but I'm going to help you figure it out at the same time. Moriarty wants to, uh, he wants to push Holmes to his limit. He wants to really mm-hmm. challenge his intellect and, you know, everything about what he is great at in order to find this. And Moriarty wants him to discover this. And yeah. he just wants him to know that if you don't, well, a lot of bad shit's going to happen. And I think for uh, a story like that, <clears throat> the, uh, if you want something with a good plot device that is intertwined with the villain uh the best way to do that is a villain that is likable in order to keep them around long enough to push you through probably three four adventures into the campaign yeah they're almost like a like a mentor Mm -hmm. it's that whole biblical notion of steel sharpened steel right and they look at it like uh the joker says this the joker is one of the most likable villains ever because you can identify with his baseline assumptions 
and then they're just a click further than a, than the normal person would really take things and that and that can be cathartic for us especially in like a film or a book because you know we all kind of have like a somewhat dark desire to to act out yeah. the id in some way I don't, and it's so weird does, with the joker because he is so chaotic and he just has no morals whatsoever and like he'll kill at the you know just the littlest thing but yeah he is like you said he's that likable character and you don't really understand why until you really think into it yeah he has because he has clear principles he, he his thesis is that this world and all these pillars of society that everything is built upon are corrupt and given the right circumstances everybody does the corrupt and and self-serving thing and he wants to prove that and he orchestrates scenarios where he proves that and the reason that batman and his dichotomy are is interesting is that they are effectively two sides of the coin that's the reason that the dialogue and the interrogation scene is some of the best dialogue ever written because it's a it's a it's a back and forth it's a battle mm-hmm. of of ideas where where the joker says as much you know you're 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 we're the same you and me i i can't exist without you it's like this is fun for me and this is what i want and it and it elevates this villain to a status removed from a lot of things and and is probably more ideological on the flip side of that coin if you want to make someone despicable then you have to do the opposite which is invert the things that that you know you make them likable which is uh villains that are likable typically have uh they're typically kind of clever mm-hmm. uh they're principled and uh they have other superficial uh markers that we like they're charismatic they're funny in some way so if you want to make a villain really not very well liked um they probably could and should be abrasive but that's not to say that any given villain that's abrasive is necessarily despicable uh but i have a few things that you can do one uh it's always this is a thing that they do in movies all the time give your villain what's called a kick the dog moment this is where they exploit and influence their power over someone that is helpless and and really undeserving of their scorn for no reason other than that they're just a mean-spirited asshole uh they do this with Joffrey a lot mm-hmm. in Game of Thrones, uh, where he just is constantly just mean spirited for he kills Ned Stark just because just because he can yeah. and he just just wants to fucking see someone else suffer. That is uh pretty despicable. Uh two, whatever bad thing they do, unlike the likable villain, the likable villain, you go like, man, well, I mean, maybe he took it a little far, but you know, I understand the instinct. Like if someone broke into my house that way, I might bash their fucking head in too make whatever it is the unlikable villain does just totally irredeemable. Like there is in the views, in the eyes of the characters, there is just no excuse, right? Like no, I mean, I'm not saying you need to have him like rape an 11 year old girl or something like that. There's just, you don't need to know anything more about a villain that they just like raped a child to go. I don't, nothing you're going to tell me is going to make me sympathize with him at this point. 
it's irredeemable. There's plenty of things like that, typically um, ruining some sort of thing just for gleeful joy or whatever. Uh, if they don't have, to Matt's previous point, if they don't have principles and they don't have like a guiding philosophy in life, then they're probably going to be despicable, really, really despicable characters, uh, you know, kick the dog and then they they do something they at some point push past the threshold where that you just cannot forgive what it is that they've done. And so therein comes the catharsis of defeating them, their need to, you know, exact revenge or or balance the scales in some way by doing away with them because the implication is that they will continue to do things that are irredeemable and the world is worse off by having them in it. So uh, those two things are pretty big. And then I would say a third thing is just kind of a character concept thing, which is typically a villain is likable if they, through whatever means, the power that they have is earned because they are clever, because they are uh, physically formidable. Uh, you want a villain to be hateable, have them have some authority that they did not earn. This is, again, Joffrey in the Game of Thrones yeah. is like he just inherits being king and he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't behave like a king. He doesn't have any sense of duty to his people. He doesn't. He's just totally drunk on power. Characters that have advantages over other characters in your world that they did not earn through whatever you know they inherited them they're just innately better they they just know all the magic without learning and studying in some way uh we tend to hate people like that yeah. <laughs> we tend to hate people that have power and authority over especially our protagonists and especially over the weak and innocent that our protagonists want to protect mm -hmm. uh it's just it's not earned it's it's not a good um it's not a good way to like uh to illustrate that your character is relatable so you if you want to make them hateable make them just totally have have the world at their feet through no doing of their own through sheer happenstance through hereditary through whatever um Anyway, do you, would you have anything to add about making the villain hateable or anything to add about making the villain more likable? Uh, no, uh, I don't on uh, those there. But I did want to bring up, unless you got anything else, I got something here that yeah, I found. I, that was kind of my three things on that. Okay. Part. So I have been going to this site recently. Um, uh, it's called storygrid.com. Mm -hmm. It's just a website that if you want to be a writer, they kind of help you out when you need to find some stuff. Uh, so I found, I went up and I looked up villain archetypes to see what they had to say. And I would like to share it with you, Dave, if you would like to hear this, sure. what is the villain archetype at its simplest? The villain is an antagonist who opposes the protagonist's goal and desires. However, a truly great villain is more than just a one dimensional character who exists solely to thwart the hero. Instead, the best villains are complex, fully realized characters with their own motivations, goals, and desires. So um, let's get into the characteristics of a great villain archetype that they have, and let's see how you feel about it. Sure. Number one, compelling motivations. A great villain has a compelling reason for why they are doing what they are doing. They believe that what they are doing is right or at least necessary, and this makes them much more interesting than a villain who is evil for the sake of being evil 
We often yeah. see the villain's motivations become known during the speech in a praise of the villain oblig obligatory moment. I love that. They talk about obligatory moments all the time. And, uh, yeah, you know, the speech always has to be done. Yeah, uh, so, uh, Shakespeare calls it a soliloquy, yep, right? Yep. Where the character is talking to the audience, but effectively talking to themselves, like an inner monologue, but they're actually saying it. This is a trope in video games. It's a trope in anime where they like tell you their evil plot yeah. or whatever. Why the they're James doing Bond what they're doing. villain uh, specifically? Yeah, yeah. And so those are kind of flat. But to me, Magneto is probably the best version mm -hmm. of this villain. Magneto is a totally relatable, likable villain. You're like, man, you know, maybe he's going too far. But if I didn't have Professor X as an anchor for a different way, yeah, I mean, humanity has declared war on on mutants and mutants are clearly superior why would you not take up arms against them and and believe that a war is brewing and that you need to kind of marshal your resources organize people and if humanity is going to be hostile to you then good luck to you right i have these amazing powers and mm -hmm. so that's uh magneto encapsulates that that version likable villain all right, so going through the uh, the likable and unlikable villain, <clears throat> like you were saying with like Joffrey, he's almost evil for the sake of being evil. Now, yeah. according to this, it's not that compelling. Uh, no. Or do you agree that but, but, a, a villain that's evil for being evil is not compelling? I agree that as a character, they're not a particularly interesting character, mm. but they serve their role in the plot of of having the cathar like are you telling me that like when joffrey gets poisoned in game of thrones you're not just like yeah. yes <laughs> yes yeah. right like yeah. thank god right when walter when Arya kills walter frey another great example so but they, they serve that purpose and in a role-playing game i think that purpose is more um more in line with what it is you want for the plot than the interesting character elements that serve uh and you can kind of straddle some of these like likable and hateable like i uh, i would i would be surprised if the archetype again i kind of brought up villains that act on their 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 pure nature mm -hmm. right like the the t-rex yeah. in um the t-rex in jurassic, jurassic park, park more likable than Newman's character or yeah. whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> uh, it's the T-800, the Xenomorph, anything that's just like acts purely on instinct, they're, they're, they're a villain, they're an antagonist, and they have malintent, but we kind of don't begrudge like, you know, something that's programmed essentially to, to do harm to the characters. We kind of go like, yeah, it's kind of, you know, yeah, it's like a, a pure engine of, of destruction. It's like kind of cool, right? Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of an archetype, at least in my view, too, and is, is in the likable category, not in the, the dislikable category. All right. Number two, ideologically driven. A villain often has a particular unwavering way of seeing the world and consistently acts out of this ideology. It's pretty much a given. That's the that's the Joker. Yeah, exactly. It's the Joker. Yeah, Hell, you could put it almost anyway. Well, especially in comic books, there's a Joker that's Lex Luthor. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of different characters. Yeah, the Joker is the best. It is version. very okay. much so. Uh, yeah. um, number three, intelligence. A smart villain is always more dangerous than a dumb one. They can outsmart mm -hmm. the hero, anticipate their moves and stay one step ahead of them. Um, Moriarty. That's Moriarty. Moriarty. Yeah. This is going to come back up later on when they, they have another thing there. That's just like, when you create a villain, this is the things that they need. And this is going to come up against that, uh, where intelligence should be the number one. 
Um, but yeah, Moriarty specifically, fuck yes. Yeah, he's the he's the epitome of that. Uh, number four, a tragic backstory. Some of the most memorable villains have a tragic backstory that helps to explain why they turn to a life of villainy. This backstory can add depth and complexity to the character, making them more sympathetic. This I don't agree with fully. It's not an archetype. No, it's not. It's an element of a villain. Yes, exactly. I, I, I frankly feel like there is too much of that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't really care for the the you know the, the new Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix as much as I think it is a brilliant piece of cinema. Yeah. Does not really belong in the Batman universe. I felt like that was really shoehorned. I think it's a good movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a great um, movie. It's just a bad Joker movie. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really fit. Yeah. I don't need. Uh, same thing with the original or the or the remake of uh, Halloween, where we get like the first entire act is like thirty minutes of Michael Myers' childhood. I don't need contextualization yeah. for why the villain. No, I prefer the, the way they. I prefer just the what was his name, Professor, uh, whatever his name was, saying that when I looked into his eyes, all I saw was black evil eyes. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just pure evil. Just pure yeah, that's, evil. Uh, Doctor Loomis. Doctor Loomis, that's what it was. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, 70s villains, all the dirty, hairy villains are kind of this way. 70s villains were great with this. Uh, we don't need Han's backstory in Die Hard for him to be a good villain. I, I don't really want to necessarily sympathize. That's not an archetype. It's an element that you could incorporate into any given um, villain. If you wanted to make them a tragic villain, then you might incorporate it you might incorporate some tragic, some damaging backstory that kind of hopefully tries to explain um, why the way they are the way they are. But frankly, I, I find it to be kind of a waste of time, especially in a role-playing game. You're not likely to unravel, excuse me, you're not likely to unravel the villain's backstory. And if you do, what is the purpose toward the plot? Yeah. How does it help you? Yeah. If it helps you stop the villain in some way, then it should be there. But the characters aren't likely to be apprised of it because they don't like, okay, great. Uh, Michael Myers had a troubled childhood. Does that help me yeah. like stop him killing people? Like it really doesn't. If you go really in need... to actually flesh out the villain's backstory and the tragic nature of it. And this is why he's evil. This must be the backbone of your adventure that you created. Otherwise it's just, or unless you just get kicks out of doing this and you're like, I'm going to do this just in case it comes up. (laughs) But because it's a red herring sometimes, like we get some of the backstory of the fucking night King in game of Thrones. And as it turns out, it's not fucking relevant at all. (laughs) And it's part of the reason it's frustrating is like, why did, why did you show us that? There's an implicit understanding that if you're shown something, uh, and again, we're talking about subverting that when you're like investigating something on a micro scale, but on a macro scale, you shouldn't be showing your players things that are not relevant mm-hmm. to the fucking plot. If you're showing them, not because they picked at the thread and they investigated it and they went down a rabbit hole, but you're showing it to them because it's like, this is important. Um, but if it's not important, it doesn't help them defeat the villain in some way or help stay their hand from understanding that the villain is not evil and he's misunderstood or she is misunderstood that can be cool but it has to have a goal instead of just going like oh it makes them a more well fleshed out character it's like there's the the there's a there's the plot to the adventure the plot to the story and most things should be done in service to that plot and if you're just layering character stuff on top of it and mistaking it for plot 
then you get there will be blood go watch that three and a half hour piece of shit and tell me if you think (laughs) it's interesting because i don't all right uh, last one on here number five threatening a great villain needs to be threatening to the hero Mm -hmm. this can be through their physical attributes such as strength speed or combat abilities but can also include emotional psychological and existential threats as well this is the point I brought up in our first episode again about villains, which is villains need to be fearsome. They need to be a threat and you need to not pull punches when they're around. If a villain is not a threat to the characters and the characters don't need to learn anything to overcome them or grow as characters in the mm-hmm. case of an RPG, it's likely gain levels and accelerate. It, my biggest criticism of some modern narratives nowadays is that it just seems like most of it just involves a character just needing to realize how awesome they are inherently in order to overcome society writ large. And there's no character arc to that. There's no catharsis because the character doesn't learn to rely on other people. It doesn't rely. They don't, they don't build their skills in some way. Fearsome villains that are a clear threat uh, and pose a real sense of danger in a variety of ways. Like the writer said, it could be a physical uh, a physical challenge. Uh, I think Darth Vader is a pretty good example. Yeah. He's a physical threat. Yep. Large, uh, he looming. Cl- he is, yep. you know, even this title, the Dark Lord, makes you even think right. when you hear that large, right. and the reason, towering. Yeah, Vader is not just imposing because he has the weight of the Empire behind him. He has authority. And in the beginning of A New Hope, uh, early in the, the trilogy, you get the impression that some people think that he just has the weight of the empire behind him and that his, and then he quickly demonstrates um, in a variety of ways that no, no, like I am in my own right, a dangerous person. Mm. Um, And so we don't get a lot of it. um, I mean, independent of the fact that like he's physically imposing, he looks scary as fuck. Uh, but you know, he force chokes the guy, he blocks the fucking, uh, the, uh, blast from fucking Han Solo. Like you just, a little goes a long way there. We don't need to be, we, we believe that Vader is, uh, fearsome, yeah. right? You know, he has a lightsaber and he fucking like, he kills Obi-Wan and like he, he cuts fucking Luke's hand off. Uh, Han Solo, like at point blank, can't fucking like hit him with a blaster, uh, he force chokes a fucking guy and then and then you know i think that that wasn't enough for a lot of people like ah, well you know like what what evidence do we get it's like that's that's a decent amount of evidence yeah. that he's fearsome um but then they just kind of like put the like in rogue one just put the fucking cherry on top like no this guy is fearsomely yeah. fucking formidable yeah there was a um, great uh thing in one of the darth vader comics there was just it was just two panels pretty much where it was Vader surrounded by rebel troops and they say, we have you surrounded. And then it's just, and then Vader saying, all I see is dead men. And then in the next panel, it's just him walking away from a smoldering crater and that's it. (laughs) You don't need to see anything else. That's it. There's, there's, you know, physically formidable characters are scary. Look at the mountain and game Mm -hmm. of Thrones. He's hamstrung by the fact that he's not super smart. He doesn't have a lot of political clout, but he is, uh, you know, the the arm of uh, political clout. Yeah. Uh, Vader is both. Uh, another example, but again, a character doesn't need to be for- like physically formidable, although it kind of helps. 
to be a threat. I think the one of the best examples of this is fucking Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects. Kaiser Soze is so scary precisely because within the narrative of the film, we are led to believe that he knows everything about you and there is no place that you can go to escape his he's the knowledge is power and i know things and i just know what buttons to push i can just pull these levers and you just go away he's kind of a shadowy puppeteer and that's scary for a different reason um but it's still the same notion that the characters need to contend with it in a different way but it's scary for the same purposes which is that he has a lot of authority that the characters need to climb some sort of mountain to uh to defeat the villain mm. because if the villain is is soft and squishy then it's like a little big deal yeah. why didn't someone else defeat him before like it's not a big deal mm. i don't know that, again i don't know that's an archetype that's an essential column of like a good villain ought to be fucking scary yeah. ought to be uh, formidable in some way all right well here let's get into it creating a villain arc a great villain archetype and this you know comes from story grid i was trying to find the who wrote this but they have no name uh, whoever wrote this in forum shadowy shadowy puppet master bro yes uh so now that we've looked into some great examples of villains let's explore how to create one of your own here are some tips for creating a compelling antagonist Number one, give them a clear motivation. Your villain needs to have a clear reason for why they are doing what they are doing. It can be something yes. personal like revenge or a desire for power or something more altruistic like a desire to save the world. This one is my number one. I I can see where people just want their bad guy to be bad. But even mm -hmm. Joffrey had, you know, the reason he got into power is he was born into it. Um, yeah. And yes, he is. He's bad for being bad, but mm -hmm. there's still more to his background than anything, uh, than just he's evil for being evil. Um, but uh, did you have anything to add on to that one? No, that's, I mean, in particular, if you're trying to make a likable villain, um, that's more important than if you're trying to mm -hmm. make a hateable villain. Um but I agree that as a general rule for good character development is characters need motivation. Why, why is the villain standing in the character's way? Why do they bother to endeavor to do what it is they do? And if you don't know that, then they're just going to kind of seem like mustache twirling evil people. And it's like it doesn't really ever call into question why something is is evil maybe this is the moral relativist in me but that's really boring to just accept that there is good and there is evil i think it's part of the reason we both kind of eschew and don't really focus a lot on like alignment yeah mm -hmm. and and it's like well because that's just boring yeah, it is, it's yeah. just saying like well you're i am good and, and sure they should be guiding principles and kind of usher your character in a certain direction but if you're only ever like relying on those as as the measure for what it is your character is doing then likely you're not putting yourself in some you know sticky moral situations that uh allow for a little bit more nuanced uh character development and plot all right number two make them complex 
Your villain should be a fully realized character with their own backstory, motivations, and desires. They should be more than just a one-dimensional character who exists solely to oppose the hero. Now, this, I could see it two other ways. Because we are playing a game, right? We are creating Mm -hmm. a story, but we're not writing a book. Uh, So I don't think when it comes to role-playing games, you don't have to do this. You can, sure. Like Dave said, if you really try to put all this shit in, you know, or like I was saying, it better be a backbone or at least some sort of plot point in your game for it to ever come up. Otherwise, there's no reason that you need to delve that deep. I I challenge this uh, pretty firmly in some particular uh, cases because to the previous point, or perhaps it was the point before, I don't remember, making your villains fearsome, part of what can make them fearsome and a big challenge is precisely because they don't have a lot of complexity. Like I said, I, I point to things acting on instinct. Um, the T-800 in Terminator is precisely fearsome because it has no other motives. Mm-hmm. And and Reese says as much to Sarah when he's explaining why the T-800 is a threat. It will not stop. It will not ever do anything or think it has no other motives but to kill you. And it will just never, ever cease until something stands in its way that is strong enough to stop it. And so that sets the stakes of the game that it's like, I am here to protect you, but this thing is just a juggernaut that just has a singular mind that just pushes forward to get to you. So the stakes of the game are implicit. Get good enough, get competent enough, get strong enough to deal with this or die. That's stakes of the game. And it's the reason that at the end of the movie, it is so cathartic when she uses her uniquely uh, human um, characteristics, that is her cleverness and her intellect. She takes advantage of the fact that the Terminator is just a singular minded thing and she lures it into the press. And it's the reason it's so fucking awesome when she lures it in and she gets out the other side and she pushes the button and she says, you're terminated fucker, right? (laughs) Strong and like clever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a fucking character arc, man. And like, so I totally dispute the fact that that it can work and it worked to great effect in some circumstances. Same thing with Ellen Ripley, like in in Alien Mm -hmm. and Aliens, is she takes advantage of the things that make her uniquely human to defeat the alien. That can be super cathartic. I mean, like, if if you want Terminator and you don't, like, you don't think it's awesome when she crushes the thing in the fucking thing and she's, she's, or, or, or get away from her, you bitch, in the fucking, the suit. If you don't think those are awesome movie, like, movie moments, and they are cathartic for you and like because they're short, succinct, and pithy. They are predicated on this whole concept of a story arc. And precisely because the the villain is singular-minded and not complex in any way, if that's the sort of villain you're going for, physically formidable and singular-minded, that can be a very intimidating villain. They don't need complexity to be scary and for it to be cathartic when their defeat happens. Uh, I'm going to put the next two into one. Um, because number three and four is make them physically threatening. Your villain should mm-hmm. pose a physical threat to the hero. This can be, th- yeah, said that. yeah, this can be through strength, combat abilities, or other powers. Four is make them intelligent. 
Smart villain is always more dangerous than a dumb one. They can outsmart the hero, anticipate their moves, and stay one step ahead of them. Already been said, gone yeah. through that. And then five, I almost make that. I see this almost as if uh, like they're just repeating themselves from making them complex. Consider giving them a tragic backstory. A tragic backstory can add depth and complexity to your villain, making them more sympathetic and interesting. But of course, this is all for actionable. Right. This is all for writing. You know, if you want to write novels, writing a book, short stories and whatnot, I can see that. Sure. But yeah, for games, uh, no. Sure. Go ahead and give it in there. This is the reason that they are what they are, but I don't think it's ever going to come up. But even, and even if it does, like it, it's it's useful to understand like why they're motivated in a certain way. But again, it, it's kind of to my point is why I was defending the hateable villain for purposes of a role playing mm-hmm. game. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that a likable villain aren't isn't more conducive to a television show, a film, a book. Maybe those those villains are more interesting uh, for those. Um, particular medium but within the context of a role-playing game the camera so to speak really stays with the players and the protagonist and needs to kind of follow the plot uh to our previous discussion about cinematic uh gameplay or whatever i subscribe to the philosophy that the the camera should stay with the players Mm -hmm. it shouldn't it shouldn't move away from the players and give them extraneous information it takes them out of the role-playing experience so if we're going to stay with the players the characters in the in the narrative the party of adventurers then most of what the villain most of what has happened to the villain is is not really germane they're not likely to learn it and it's not actionable and so consequently you want someone that they're striving toward they're playing catch up with and and is 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 a carrot that you're dangling and moving in the plot and trying to like race against time to defeat so that a likable villain is more interesting in the context of of a, a overall story that might not be hampered by focusing only on one group of characters it can bounce around in time it can it can illuminate the character's motivation and give certain scenes uh more gravitas but that role-playing games don't really work that way mm. and so because they don't work that way um you know i land on the on the side of of, of making them likable villains are more fun to play yeah. <laughs> i really uh i try to straddle a little bit of, of a little bit of both but um yeah I don't know. well they i want to just do this uh the the sentence that uh, begins their final words in here, this last paragraph that they have, I think is really good. The villain archetype is a crucial component for any great story. A well-written antagonist can drive the plot forward, challenge the hero, and keep the readers, or in this sense, the players, engaged. Yeah, it, I agree with that. Um, I also... They're, they're delineating a lot of the points that they make about tragic backstory giving the villain texture or whatever is actually teasing out the difference between an antagonist and a villain right. yeah right like uh, all villains are antagonists mm-hmm. they said so villain, in their opening statement on that yeah all villains are antagonists but antagonists are not necessarily villains 
if you want a villain, a villain is villainous. A villain is is despicable mm-hmm. in some way. Is a some way, uh, uh, like for lack of a better word, the audience, and in this case, if it's a role playing game, the audience is the players. Judge them to be bad, and so the more you move away from that, the more you're moving away from the concept of a villain and just an antagonist. And that's, that's fine. If you want a morally gray landscape, uh, we talked about this with the concept of the anti-hero, right? Like characters need to have flaws and sometimes you have enough flaws to the character is a protagonist, but not a hero. A hero acts heroically and does things of great moral fortitude. And if you have someone that isn't doing that, you have the Michael Chiklis in the shield. You have uh, the Tony Sopranos, the Don mm-hmm. Drapers, the the uh, Walter uh, White, the Walter White. I was trying to remember his mm-hmm. name. The Walter. I almost called him Heisenberg. <laughs> uh, the Walter Whites of the world. They are morally gray characters. They are anti-heroes. You identify with them in varying degrees. And um, that's great for the plot of of a television show where sometimes you're rooting for them. Sometimes you're like, Oh, they're we're disgusted by them. Sometimes it's kind of like a 50, 50, like, well, maybe you went too far, but, and you, you go through that journey with them. If that's the kind of D and D or role-playing campaign you want, then that's great. Um, but it is, it is a lot more work <laughs> and, and, and it seems like it's more focused on character than it is story. And I would just posit I would raise the question of whether um, whether an adventure, we call it an adventure. We say this is an adventure. A campaign is a series of adventures. An adventure story is not as character-driven as, as some other things. And it should be a little more plot-driven, in which case you need to kind of make those delineations a little more crisp and not as, as nuanced and complex. A character study is a role-playing game is not really the avenue for a character study. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. I I think that's going to be a podcast for this week. Uh, If anybody out there wants to add on to this little discussion, send it to inside the GM studio at gmail.com. And if you want to come in and look at our faces while we talk about this shit, you can go to twitch.tv slash inside the GM studio or even youtube.com slash inside the GM studio every Sunday at nine o'clock Eastern, six o'clock, Pacific ish. We're gonna, you know, just ish ish. Yeah, right, right. Write us and let you let us know who you think is right. Oh, am I right go. or am I right? And then come just back. Like, who who's right? Yeah, come back next week for our next segment where we're gonna go head to head. I've already got an idea. Oh yeah. But for this week, for inside the GM studio, I'm Matt. I am David. A good night. Good night. <laughs>